listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. It is so easy to get lost on the creative journey, and that's why this show exists to help you find your path to unlocking your creative potential. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into this episode. Yo, today on the show, we have Jonathan Fields of the Good Life Project and the Good Life Project podcast, which I have been a big fan of for a long time. He's had guests that we've had on this show, Morgan Harper Nichols, Mary Kate McDevitt, probably other people with three names, but I've listened to a bunch of episodes over the years. He has a great podcast. He is a legit professional when it comes to interviews, but he put out this thing called Sparkatype. And it's kind of like a personality test for your work and the work that makes you come alive. And Sophie and I took the test maybe a year ago and we were both just like, man, so encouraged and excited about the new insights on what work really does it for us. And for me, there was new stuff in it, but there was also reminders of like, man, why am I not making these things part of my practice? And so I am thrilled to have Jonathan on the show. He just launched a book about the Sparkatype framework called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. It's very in the wheelhouse of this show, and I know you're going to love it. Jonathan comes on. He walks through the various Sparkatypes. As you're listening through, yes, I want you to like, See which ones spark something for you as a person and, and which of these might be your type. But also for me, it was really interesting to listen through the lens of, you know, my friends and family and colleagues and collaborators and try to get insight on that as well. This is something that I'm very personally excited about. And I was thrilled when Jonathan agreed to come on the show. I think you're going to love it. This whole thing is just so creative pep talk. I'll shut up now. Without further ado, get ready to come alive with the Sparkatypes with Jonathan Fields. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, AndyJPizza.com if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. 
the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you wanna hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Jonathan, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, Like you were saying right before we started, we have uh, so many friends in common and also guests in common. And I'm guessing we even have like a decent portion of audience in common. So, uh, and a common passion. So I am super pumped that you took some time out to chat with me today. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so glad you invited me. I'm, I'm excited to just dive in and see where we end up. Yeah. So I, you have a new book coming out and I'm very excited about this. It's something that's been on my radar and I want to talk a lot about that. But before we get started, I just wanted to ask you, you know, a lot of creative shows start with like, how did you know you first had a talent? But for me as a creator, it always started before that. There was always, it was less like, oh, this is something about me. It was more like I consumed something that I wasn't happy to just stay as a consumer. I had to participate. It was some creator that made me want to create. And so for a lot of people who don't know, The Good Life Project is a a podcast and it's also an organization that it seems like it just seeks to help people live fully alive, meaningful lives. And I wondered if... Was there a person for you growing up, maybe teenage, maybe 20s, whatever, was there a person doing that out in the world that sparked that desire for you? Yeah, you know, it's such a good question. And I sometimes think about this myself because I'm always thinking, you know, I'm I'm trying to reverse engineer. Where does this stuff come from in my own life and in other people's lives? I know you have that same fascination. And, um, you know, for me, there are probably a couple things, but in terms of, you know, my fundamental impulse when I invest effort is to make things. I'm a maker. You know, like I make ideas manifest. I have been that way long before the notion of skill or talent or anything else like that dropped into my world. And if I think all the way back, like where does that impulse, which has led to the creation of books, of companies, of this, you know, like Good Life Project, like you were talking about, probably the, the earliest and the most direct influence is my mom. Um, so when I was growing up, my mom is an artisan and she bounced between a couple of things, but most of my childhood, she was a potter and we lived in this old house in a water town outside of New York city. Actually, I grew up in the town that is actually the real town that East egg from great Gatsby is based on. Oh, that's wild. And yeah. So, so the basement of my house was her pottery studio. So you would, you know, you'd open the door. And then there's this, there's an inside door with a screen on it and you'd swing it open, you'd walk down the steps and you'd kind of start consuming the clay dust in (laughs) all parts of your body and your lungs, your eyes, your skin, because it was just perpetually floating in the air. And then you'd you'd turn the corner and it was a pretty big basement and it was just this fantasy land 
of electric wheels, a massive old kick wheel with like a 300-pound concrete flywheel that you would kick to keep it going in the far corner, and, and an electric kiln, and then rows of this industrial green metal shelving with giant old jars filled with different chemicals that she would make into glazes, and then thousands of pounds of boxes of different kinds of clay from, you know, like stoneware to porcelain to all this stuff. And, and she would just steal away there. You know, that was her happy place. When she was sitting behind a wheel, mm. you know, the world would vanish away and she'd have, you know, like some good old folk music or something blaring. And, and then she would vanish every, every couple of weeks. She had on a separate piece of property this massive gas-fired kiln that you could literally like walk inside and it would mm. take almost a day to fire. They'd literally have to sit vigil around it all night long while they were firing this thing. And so, so I saw her embrace this DNA-level creative impulse. She just lived it. And then I saw what, what she made and what she made were all these pieces that she then turned around and very often, you know, we, we, we would do the... the thing where we would go to craft fairs on the weekend and she would sell all of her stuff and and it made people smile and it's sort of like I think the connection between making things that didn't exist before you conceived of them doing it in a physical way with your body and your mind and then being able to to create something that would then go out into the world and in some way inspire joy inspire be useful move people that really that has stayed with me for life, and it has been a shared impulse that my mom and I both have. I think uh, I don't know whether she's so much passed it on to me as it's just you know I, it was born into me, and uh, seeing her example really gave me permission to embrace it. That is uh, a, a great story, and the second thing that it makes me think is, wow, it's super lucky to have that person be someone as close to you as your mom. That's the second thing I thought. But the first thing I thought was a walk-in kiln does sound like the premise of a horror film. Uh, <laughs> and trust me, as, as like a little kid, it was a little bit terrifying also. You're like, hmm. Like, this is, yeah, this could go bad. Um, yeah. but, uh, but seriously, the, it's just so uh, incredible to have that person be your parent. And I, I don't give parenting advice uh, because I just don't. I don't feel like I'm a master at that. But I do. Anytime anyone ever asks me, I always say, like, live a life that they want instructions to. Because that was my biggest problem. I grew up with my dad and my stepmom, and that was my biggest problem with them is they were just living lives that I was like, I just don't know if I want to go there, so I'm not really open to your input. But I can imagine, you know, watching your mom embody this sparked passion must have been really powerful to you uh, as her son. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And she's also very open. She surrounded herself, herself with um, other craft people. So we were rolling with people who were metal workers and woodworkers and, and then construction and building houses. So it was, she kind of surrounded herself with a community of people and brought us into that community. Like we weren't, you know, told like, go do something else. You know, we were welcomed into it. So you know, she, she was definitely the, the gateway and then, you know, introduced us to a world of people that kind of just walked their own walk and lived in a, you know, they were the weird ones um, and they were totally cool with it. And I think that gave me a lot of permission to, 
to explore what that would be like. Now, of course, like every good teenager, I completely rebelled against that in a lot of different ways, but, you know, eventually started to come back to it. Yeah, I was just going to say, was one of those rebellions your first career path? For people that don't mm. know, maybe you could just... <laughs> <laughs> maybe. It seems like the opposite of a ceramicist son. What What was your first uh, career uh, yeah. before Good Life? Uh, that would be a lawyer. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting, I, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur also. I was always, yeah. I was a lemonade right. stand kid. I was always making stuff. And I, I did take what a lot of people consider this kind of odd left turn after college. I went to law school and then ended up practicing for about four or five years before I realized that it just was not my thing. Um, but, you know, there, there was a reason for that too, That that is not really super apparent on the surface. And that is that I spent so much time just as an entrepreneur in college. Actually, I was a club DJ and also we built a company that um, was a sound and lighting and music company in college. That was the first business I ever sold, actually. Mm. But I didn't go to class. (laughs) (laughs) I was out DJing in clubs until four in the morning. And when it came time to actually figure out what am I doing next, I went out to the world and I was working outside sales and I was terrible at it. And (laughs) And then I got really curious about what I was intellectually capable of because I knew I did not invest myself in that in any meaningful way in college. And I kind of thought that law school would test me and it would also give me amazing skills, whether I ended up practicing or not. And, and, and I, I do believe it did. I mean, it taught me how to think and speak and construct arguments and analyze in a way that stays with me to this day, even though... The practice of law was definitely, at least the way that I practiced, not super well aligned with that maker orientation. In fact, there's a there's a reasonable argument that says one of the reasons I left the practice is because that maker impulse was just rising up big time. And I was a yeah back in the day a venture capital lawyer, so I was helping other people raise money so they could make really cool big things. And I kept thinking to myself but I want to make really big, cool things. And that was a part of what eventually led me out of it. And I also feel like that kind of analytical mind and and that way of constructing an argument definitely seems like it lended itself to the book that you're putting out right now called Sparked. For people that don't know about this whole, it's almost more like a movement. Can you just explain what this book is and what the spark types are? Yeah. So what I've realized over the past couple of decades really is that a lot of people have come to me asking a particular question and that is what should I do with my life? And and when they ask me that question in particular, because I've been so focused on the domain of work, they're usually asking some variation of how do I find and do work that makes me come alive, that gives me a sense of meaning, of purpose, like I'm, you know, doing the thing I'm here to do that that I'm excited and energized by where I can kind of lose myself in that magical place of flow. And I feel like there's a bigger sense of purpose around what I'm doing. And I have spent a long time, about two and a half decades, diving into that question in a lot of different ways. And a chunk of years back, I realized that there weren't really super direct practical tools to be able to answer this question yeah. without me sort of stepping into the middle of a conversation or sharing this, a deeper path. Or, you know, there was a lot of academic research around these different things. There was a lot of spiritual stuff. And I wanted to create something that I thought would help. And what I started to ask myself was, is there some universal set of 
deeper impulses that we all have, that when we invest effort that is aligned with those impulses for no other reason than just like we have this impulse and we want to we wanna work, mm-hmm. will that give us the feeling that we're looking for? So I started to ask this question. I started to look at all the different ways that we could work, all the different jobs, industries, and and I start to peel the onion and say, well, what's underneath that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? And I was looking not for the adjective or the adverb, but the verbs. And eventually it reduced down to these 10 impulses for work that make you come alive. And then what I realized is that built around each one of these impulses is a set of behaviors, tendencies, and preferences, sometimes pretty quirky, mm. things you know that are common between people who share these impulses and they really formed a set of archetypes, and I call those sparkotypes, which is really just kind of fun shorthand yeah. for the archetype or the imprint for work that makes you come alive, that sparks you. And then I started to just really deepen into these and say, okay, like how do these show up? What happens when a person really aligns their work with these? What happens when they abandon it? What are the quirky things that it triggers? You know, like Where do they stumble? Where do they go into the dark side? And then what does it look like when they're working with other people? And like... How can you earn a living doing this thing? Can you even earn a living doing this thing? Or is it really difficult to do it? Are there obvious paths or not? And all of that research led to eventually building an assessment uh, called the Sparkotype Assessment, which we released into the world after a year of development and beta testing in 2018. I didn't realize how hard it would be to build that. <laughs> um, as, as a maker, I'm like, ah, how hard could it be? Yeah. And then I was like, wow, this is really hard to create something that is powerful and accurate. And we've since had about uh, half a million people complete it, generating about 25 million data points. Wow. And the stories that have come out of it are just really, really, not just heartwarming, but profound in terms of the way that people feel seen and understood and, and are able to see themselves. And so with so much more clarity and then understand so much better, how do I move into this world of work in a way that makes me come alive and doesn't empty me out, which, you know, at this moment in time, (laughs) we need more than ever. And that's really what's at the heart of, uh, of the book. You know, it's a deep dive into those 10 different types. Yeah. And, and I'm one of those, that huge group of people that took the quiz. I was one of them and, and my wife was one of them and we found it to be extremely insightful. And we've, we've done creative archetypes on this show and we've done, mm-hmm. all, I've, I've always been a big fan of that. So I, I have a very small sense of how difficult that process must have been, especially to be as robust and insightful as I found it to be. But I also want to just highlight two things. One thing is this idea of like wanting to work, I don't want to fall off the deep end here because there's just so many pieces here, but this whole labor shortage, I've seen so many people talk about it and I think it's a complex issue and there's so much going on there. But one of the things that I've seen over and over on the internet is just this idea of like, of course people don't want to work. And I've thought, man, I just don't know if that's the problem. I think evolutionarily, we all have these impulses And maybe the labor shortage has more to do with trying to suppress those impulses and replace them with ones that aren't natural to people. And I feel like your book and your work is so timely because of that. Yeah, that is such an interesting impulse. I've been thinking a lot about that too, because we're all, you know, we're all seeing the same stories, the same data, the same research, you know. Something like, depending on the study that you that's reported, anywhere from 25 to 75% of people 
are leaving their jobs, often without something else to go to. And you're like, and then a lot of people are, are just sort of like sitting on the sidelines like you shared. And it's like, mm. w- when did work become a dirty word? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, th- there's also a really shifting expectation about what work is and what work isn't. You know, when I think about work, I think about it much more broadly as any investment of effort. You know, it's, you wake up in the morning and you invest effort and that, you know, it takes something out of you. But a lot of us think about it just as our job, the thing we get paid for. Yeah. And what I've really come to believe is that if you can invest effort in a way that gives you this feeling of just feeling utterly alive and on purpose and nourished and dropping into flow. And a part of that is that you're generating something that is of value to other people. Well, then you can get paid for that. Yeah. But a lot of the assumptions that were made, and honestly, I think this, you know, this goes back to the, the Great Depression and probably earlier. Like there, We've been through seasons in our history where the idea of personal fulfillment and work, it, it really wasn't, it wasn't what it was about. You know? There was vast economic, um, socioeconomic, cultural suffering. And it was all about you show up, you go to work, you put your head down, you make enough money to you know, put a little bit of food on the table and keep a roof over the head of the family. And there are times in our history and in individuals' histories where that's what matters most. You know, you, you got to be able to actually be safe and, and eat. And sometimes that's just what you have to do. But then along comes, and I'm Gen X, you know, we're the disaffected generation. So we just kind of rolled after that and didn't question any assumptions. And then along come the generations younger than me. And all of a sudden people are like, huh, maybe there's something else. You know, maybe this thing called work isn't just about money, isn't just about sustenance. You know, like that matters, of course, but maybe it's about something more, you know, maybe actually purpose matters. Maybe this feeling of like meaningfulness matters. Maybe the feeling of joy and energy and excitement matters. And I think that's really the generation that starts to say, let's dig into this and the expectations start to shift, you know? And now I think we're in this moment where I think you're right. I think a lot of people started to awaken to that over the last decade or so, but a a ton of people didn't. They were still just kind of like keeping on, keeping on. And the, the level of mass simultaneous disruption that's happening in the world of work right now is leading all those other people who weren't questioning to question And I think you're right. You know, the reason that a lot of people, like you said, it's really complex. So we're not going to deconstruct why, you know, some people aren't stepping back in. But I do think this assumption that, you know, why would people want to work if they don't have to? It's alien to me because it assumes underneath that, that work cannot also be a source of profound joy and meaning and purpose and connection and elevation. And I think that's horrifyingly sad because it is, it's, it's a false assumption. And a lot of the work that I've been doing for a long time now is trying to, trying to, to peel away you know, that illusion and say, well, well, can we come at this differently? You know? And I think you're right. I think that the moment that we're in right now is a, is a moment of really powerful opportunity to reimagine and reclaim. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I also just want to highlight that having dove into the book and your work, this isn't some out of reality 
concept. You're not actually suggesting, and I want to come back to this probably later in the conversation, you're not actually suggesting that everybody just blows up their work, so to speak, and just go with their spark. It's actually a lot more practical in terms of application than that. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not trying to say just go do whatever makes you happy. Um, and I think you do that. You walk that tightrope very, very well with this work and, and talk about pl- practical ways to really um, apply that. So I just wanted to say that right out the gate. But I do want to circle back real quick and say, I'd be a terrible interviewer if I said if you said that there were profound stories that came from some of this work and didn't ask you for any examples. Is there anybody that comes to mind in particular? You have a lot of stories in the book, actually. What are your favorites? Yeah, oh, there are so many. It's funny because in my head there are you know there are the stories that quote made the book, and then there are the stories that were amazing and deep and soulful that we just weren't able to include. I actually. You'll appreciate this as, as as a fellow maker and creator. Yeah, I turned in I turned in a hundred and twenty five thousand word manuscript, <laughs> and uh, my my editor, who was very kind, was was kind of like, okay, so which sixty thousand words do you want to cut? <laughs> so, there's a lot that's in there, but a lot that's not. Also, you know, so there are these ten different archetypes, right? And one of them is the nurturer, and. I had a lot of fun writing that chapter because there are so many stories about people who who really lead from the heart. Mm. And the impulse, the fundamental impulse of the nurturer is to lift others up. You know, it's all about elevation. It's all about giving care or taking care. It's a primal impulse. It's not something you choose to do or don't choose to do. You wake up in the morning and you feel compelled to do it. And that person also very often is driven by a deep, deep sense of empathy. So it's almost like if you don't act on it, then the suffering that you're feeling in the world around you stays as your suffering. And you do it you know, for other people because you like to see them lifted, but also it helps you because you're not living in that same well. One of the stories in there is um, actually a friend of mine, Jen Pasteloff. She spent her time, she lost her dad very young in life and kind of wandered through life. She lived in LA. She wanted to, like so many people out there, you know, she wanted to make it. She wanted to be in the business. She wanted to act. She supported herself by working in a restaurant like so many people do for, I think, about 15 years. And she had this fierce impulse. She became one of the most beloved people. You know, she had all of these regulars who would always come back and she knew their lives and, and they knew her life and they were like family. And while in theory, you know, like she was serving them food, taking orders and serving them food, what she was doing was creating this container of love, container of trust, container of care that made people feel seen and heard and embraced and known over and over and over. And, they, you know, so she had the most stunning, quote, <laughs> client base. What people didn't know at the time is that Jen was also simultaneously losing her hearing. So she would, you know, and it was a loud restaurant and she resisted acknowledging that herself also. So what she started teaching herself to do was read lips. Um, And then she would get down, like she would kind of squat down at eye view with people and get really close and just gaze at their face, which created, it was like she was casting a spell of attention and affection um, that, that was almost rapturous for people. And what they didn't know was that she was doing it in part because she couldn't hear them and she was trying to read their lips. Mm. But what started as her ability to start to cope with and develop the skills that eventually, you know, 
would become a, a stronger scale. Um, it created this kind of like phenomenal, magical bubble of attention and care that had people feel so elevated and so lifted. And it also became a bit of this super skill for her for nurturing because she learned to just pay fierce and direct attention to one person at a time and really give them their focus, which is so rare these days that when you get that from somebody, it lands as such a loving and unusual embrace that you, with, without ever having a word uttered to you or a physical hug, you know, you feel lifted. And that has, you know, Jen now, she, she's a fantastic author and a teacher and leads retreats and yoga retreats and writing. And, and she's transitioned and, and now has this phenomenal career where she's really focused on bringing people together in community and lifting them up together. And she's always at the center seeing people. Um, she has a tattoo on her arm, which reads, I got you. And when you're in her presence for even a few seconds, you instantly know that that's true. Wow. That, thanks for sharing that. That's an incredible story. It's very just classically good story of the whole, the obstacle becomes the way kind of thing. I'm, mm. Love it. It, it is amazing. And I, you mentioned the nurturer. I wanted to see how you best thought to tackle this. I, would you want to go through the 10 and just briefly mention the different sparkotypes? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Okay. Do you, I have the list right here or I don't know if you just have it like maybe it's tattooed on your arm or something. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, what's, what's really funny is embarrassing. You know, like I'm, I'm 55 and every once in a while my, my brain kind of goes somewhere else. I'm like, okay, I got nine of them, but what's the <laughs> last one? It's like, well, dude, I prepared, you should know I prepared this. You made this that. stuff. <laughs> as, a, as a creator, this is something I'm very familiar with, of, right? uh, asking me about my, my book, my thing. And I'm like, oh, man, I think it's in that one. So yeah, I got your back. I got you in this. All right, I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll go down it. And if I drop one, you can sort of like, you can help me out at the end. Yeah, fair enough. You just introduce them and give us a little mini blurb of like, what are these types of people? And there's a quiz that we're going to send people to, but maybe even as people are listening through, they can just feel like which of these kind of sparks something in them. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny, even just hearing them in a really basic description, often people are like, oh yeah, that's me. Um, or, or like, that is absolutely not me. I want nothing to do with that. Um, (laughs) and the, the assessment really just kind of helps you really tease it out. But yeah, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of times you can get this intuitive hit by just hearing what they are. So, so let's walk through the 10. Okay. We'll start out with the maven. So the fundamental impulse for the maven is knowledge acquisition. You wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, and all you want to do is devour knowledge. You want to learn. It's often driven to the level of fascination. You can't stop learning. Sometimes this shows up in a really narrow and deep way. So you latch onto a topic, and you just go deep, deep, deep into this narrow topic, as deep as you can go. You might... Google, you might take classes, retreats, you might, whatever it is that you can do, you go deep into it. Sometimes it shows up in a very broad way and you open your eyes in the morning and you are just broadly curious. You want to know everything about everything, about everyone that comes your way. You talk to everybody, you talk to the person behind the counter at the deli, you talk to the person who's, you know, like driving in a car with you, you talk to any stranger that you can talk to not just because you're a social or extroverted person, but you want to learn about their experience of life. 
Mm. You just, you are constantly curious. And then there's sort of like a hybrid model that flips between the two of those. One of the interesting quirks is that what we see when we broaden out from the impulse to the archetype is that extroverts and introverts tend to seek knowledge a bit differently. So a lot of times extroverts will seek interaction with other people. They take classes, they'll have conversations, they'll go to groups or retreats. Whereas more introverted folks, and I'm raising my hand here, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> they will, they'll, they'll, they'll spend a lot of time on a computer. They'll Google, they'll read documents, they'll watch videos, they'll do podcasts, you know, all those things. They tend to be more leaning towards the autodidact side. So it's not that the impulse to learn is less. They just go about it differently in a way that better suits their social orientation. I, I, I thought that was really interesting to see that pattern emerge. That, yeah, that's fascinating. It makes total sense to me. Yeah. I, I'm actually, a, I definitely present extroverted, but I'm an introvert. And when I am in research mode, it is a very solitary thing. And I mm. am in the com- next to the computer on my phone, listening to podcasts, reading, doing audiobooks, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's my wiring too. So. so next up, we have the maker. That's me. The mm. primary impulse of the maker is to make ideas manifest. It's all about creation. You know, you, you, you look around and you're constantly saying, what can I make? Now, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I learned early on that when you make things that in some way also touch other people, that can be really powerful because you get a little bit more validation. You feel good because you're helping other people in some way. And also the truth is, you know, if it appears as something that's of value to other people, well, then you can generally figure out some kind of way to earn a career around that impulse. But this impulse can be really broad, and it, it tends to, it tends to be acknowledged really early in life. Not because it actually shows up earlier than anyone else, but because it's rewarded earlier than many other impulses, and it's integrated into a lot of the activities that we do. So, in a family, you're constantly given creative tasks. In school, hey, what are we going to do in science today in second grade? Let's make a diorama. You know, so the opportunities for this impulse to show up are presented really early. And when you engage in it, you're very often rewarded for the effort. So it's it's a really powerful one. For me, I cannot remember a time in my life where I was not fueled by this impulse. And it's while I write books and create events and media these days, for me, the, the purest expression of it I have found is actually when I work physically with my hands to create physical objects. So three years ago, I kind of vanished away from the world for a month and lived above this old, partially renovated roadhouse in rural Pennsylvania, working with a luthier to learn how to build an acoustic guitar from nothing. Wow. And it was one of the most powerful experiences. Of my, I was so joy. I was working 13-hour days with one 40-minute break for lunch, you know, like dog-tired by the end of the day. My body was a wreck, and I was so happy and fulfilled. It was such an incredible experience because I could just lose myself in it. I would blink and it was 13 hours gone. So that's the maker. The next up is the scientist. Hmm. So the fundamental scientist impulse is figuring things out. You are all about solving problems and puzzles, um, figuring out answers to burning questions and quandaries. Now, here's the interesting thing about the scientist. Well, there's a lot of interesting things, but here's, here's one interesting thing. Very often, the solutions that you come up with will have a lot of value for other people. You know, if the scientist applies this impulse in the domain of, let's say, cancer research, and they spend years developing ways to actually treat cancer that are more effective, 
Well, the results of that may impact society on a mass scale. You may impact millions of people with the things that you figure out, which is amazing. And the scientist loves the fact that they make a difference on that level. And at the same time, they're fundamentally rewarded by just the opportunity to, to spend their lives deeply in pursuit of answers and solutions to problems and puzzles. Like that is the first reward. And the fact that what they figure out is meaningful to others is really cool and very often pays their, you know, their living, but it's actually not the fundamental reason that they do it. So it's kind of interesting. Can I just pause you real quick? Yeah. I that was one of my favorite things from diving into the book was I feel like this is a pattern that we talk about on the show all the time because there's an idea in the creative world that, you know, you should focus on your own impulse only and your audience be damned. And I've always just tried to make that slightly more nuanced and say it's a both and and maybe there's a hierarchy of order of how that happens like Focus on your impulse initially. Yes, 100%. Let that be its own reward. Then I don't find, you know, like a stand-up comedian who tests the material before they make the special, go ahead and do that. Let them be involved. Make part of your practice about connecting, but make sure you get the order right. And I think that's been missing from the creative world. And I just love that you highlight this in such a specific way of the reward. There's lots of rewards to these gifts and these, and these impulses. There's tons of them, but the primary one, if for this to be your spark type has to be the impulse itself, the, the fulfillment of the impulse. Is that right? Yeah, no. And it, it's sort of teasing out the difference also between, is this something that I expect to earn a living from? Or is this something that I'm just going to do because of the feeling that it gives me? And that's amazing and that's okay. But yeah. they're two different things. You know, if you want to earn a living from it, at some point you have to consider, is this of value to others? It's, it's part of the equation. But that, when that becomes the leading uh, thing that you're chasing, very often that's when it becomes an emptying experience because you lose track of honoring the deeper impulse. There's a spectrum across these different uh, 10 sparkotypes. Yeah. And they're fulfilled. It's, I call it the satisfaction spectrum. Some lie more on a process side and some lie more on a service side. So the ones we've been talking about so far, the maker, the maven, and the scientist, tend to lie much more heavily on the process side. So you're very, very fulfilled from simply investing yourself in the process, even if what you create through that process is tremendously valuable to other people, sure. right? And when you, when you sort of slide across the spectrum, then you almost have to be in relation to and creating value for other people to be fulfilled. So it tends to sometimes actually be easier to find conventional ways to earn a living as you head all over to the other side of the spectrum because fundamentally you have to be doing something that's of value to somebody else to allow the impulse to sort of like go out into the world. Yeah. And that makes total sense. And it, it also brings up this idea of like how you might have got yourself out of whack from Mm -hmm. this particular expression or how you lost sense of it could very well be that you got caught up in the ego rewards of other people's spark a type and tried to embody them for reasons beyond that they make you come fully alive. And I can see how that can get messy when you don't get this piece right. Yeah, 100%. 
All right, I won't interrupt you. Again. Okay, um, I have no <laughs> so, promises, but okay, <laughs> it's it's all good. We'll we'll get where we need to go, no matter what. <laughs> so we move on from the scientist to the essentialist. Now, the essentialist, funny enough, is the farthest away from my natural impulses you can get. And, and if you want later, we can talk about what I call that. But the essentialist fundamental impulse is to create order from chaos, to create clarity. And what's interesting is this is the person where you look around, you see either a a mass data set or a ton of information or physical objects in a room, and you're bothered by the fact that they're not sensibly put together, that they're chaotic, that there's no order around it, there's no logic, there's no elegance to it. And there's an impulse in you that says, I want to fix this. And when you do that, it can be an incredibly valuable impulse, just like we've been talking about. You know, you create these astonishing spreadsheets or systems or project management setups or the producer for our for the Good Life Project podcast, actually, Lindsay, is an essentialist. So she manages this giant editorial calendar with 40 different episodes in production at any given time which makes me want to cry when I look at it. <laughs> yeah. um, and when she was a little kid, she used to organize her stuffed animals, you know, like by color and height on her, or herself. So this tends to show up really early. And the essentialist impulse is also, if you are not an essentialist, people tend to not believe that anybody could want to do this work <laughs> because most people who are not that person not only are not interested in it, but they actually actively want to run from that kind of work. And I'm raising my hand right there. And I just want to say bonding moment. This is my (laughs) anti-spark type, spark type as well. This is the one that I got as the least for me. So yeah, I totally understand that. Yeah. So next up we have what I call the performer. And this is interesting because sometimes people who will take the assessment and and their primary spark type says performer, they'll be like, ah, I don't know how I feel about that word. And a lot of times there's a bit of baggage associated with it because we tend to think that, well, performing is faking it. It is you know, like showing up or performing is standing out more than we should. Or if you're taught as a kid, well, the only outlet for that is performing arts and nobody ever makes it in that field. So it's not really a valid thing to think about. Then very often this impulse gets stifled. But the real underlying impulse when we're talking about performer is the impulse to enliven and energize and animate an interaction moment or experience. You know, So that can show up in the performing arts, but it can also show up in a boardroom. It can also show up behind a bar. It can show up in a conversation with with a kid or with family. You know, it can show up as a mentor. It can show up in almost any other setting. It can show up in a sales interaction, which can be really powerful. So oftentimes this impulse is stifled because people feel like there's kind of only one way for it to come out. And it's a bit of a scary way and maybe a too egotistical way. But in fact, it's those assumptions that are wrong, not the impulse itself. And we find that very often this appears to be the most sort of culturally stifled impulse because of the assumptions that get wrapped around it. And when people realize, no, this is real, and there are all these different ways to express it, it can be a really powerful moment. Mm. So next up, we have warrior. So the warrior is about gathering and leading. So you have this impulse to bring people together 
and to organize and then step into a position where you say, hey, we're all at this point. Let's go here. You know, and this could be an adventure together. This could be on a team as a, you know, like a captain of a team. This could be when you're six years old on a playground. You're like, hey, everybody, come on. Let's go on an, on a on a hunt for, you know, like monsters in the woods. But the impulse tends to show up really early and be rewarded when you're a kid and very often be rewarded through when you're a teen. But then if it shows up in a really strong way early in your career, some people will look at you with a suspect eye because they're kind of like, you haven't earned the privilege of doing that yet in this mm. context. You've got to, yeah, and so, so sometimes there can be a little bit of a struggle in early career when you haven't actually built the social currency and shown that you have the skills to do it really effectively. But then once you do that, you can be incredibly powerful at what you do. So that moves us over to the sage. And the fundamental impulse yeah. of the sage is insight. So it's all about illumination. The sage wakes up and says, I know something cool, something that would help other people, something that's valuable or interesting, but it's not enough for me to know. Like the maven would be like, that's enough. The sage mm. says, I've got to share this. I want other people to know what I know. How can I turn the lights on of understanding and insight in other people? This very often shows up, you know, in traditional teaching professions, but it doesn't have to. It can show up in all sorts of different contexts. This impulse also sometimes gets in a little bit of trouble when you don't entirely have mastery of the domain of knowledge or expertise <laughs> that you want to teach when the impulse races ahead of the knowledge side of things. So sometimes, again, like there's a little bit of a back and forth while those things catch up to each other. That's hilarious, too. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I was just going to add that. Uh, Sage is my second one. Performer is my first one, actually. I mm. have a, an ex a clear example of the thing you're talking about. When I first started my illustration career, I got invited to do a talk at this little gathering. And, and then I also got to do a talk at, the, at a university. And both of which I just bombed. It was the worst <laughs> experience ever. And it was a lot to do with what you're talking about of just like, oh, I, I was so, as that sage impulse of like, I want to share these things, but I didn't really have anything to share. I've called it in the past, like, it's the hero's journey who wants to share the elixir, but they never went out and got it. So they're more like a snake oil salesman when you have a fake elixir. And so just, you know, getting, I was so pumped to be like, all right, it's my time to talk to a classroom. This is like, I was probably like 22 or something. And it just was the worst experience ever to the point where I was like, I swear off uh, any public speaking. <laughs> and I didn't do any for like seven, eight years, something all the while becoming legitimate as an illustrator. And when it came back around, it became a huge part of my business, but I lived that example to a T. Yeah, and it's a really common experience because the impulse is so strong. And when you do it well, it's so fun and so enriching. That, But sometimes we just kind of race ahead of, you know, having enough knowledge and mastery to have something really worthy of sharing. And at the same time, it's probably also important to note that sometimes the way that you get good at that thing of illumination and instilling insight by doing it, you know, True. teachers are, are, are made, not born. So even once you know a ton of stuff, you then have to develop the craft around illumination in addition to just whatever expertise you have. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, that happened second time around. I, I put so much more time into thinking, how do you actually transfer thoughts and feelings and got super into analogies and stories and metaphors and all that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. I, you know, it's funny. I remember hearing chunky years back, Malcolm Gladwell talking about him in his speaking career. And he said, you know, in the early days, he had these huge hit books and he's like incredibly smart guy and, and a fiercely accomplished writer. And then he started to speak and he would speak and he was just, he realized he was not doing well. Mm. And it dawned on him, he said, you know, like, I have to treat the actual skill of yeah. sharing what I know with the same level of attention and devotion that I, you know, treated writing. And then he really devoted himself to that. And then everything began to transform. So, yeah, it, it shows up in, in all different people in all parts of life. Makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about the, the final three. Yeah. So we move from there to the advisor. The advisor's impulse is to create a container of safety and trust and to guide others through a process of growth. So very often it's an intimate, it's a deeply relational impulse, and you get as much fulfillment from the depth and the quality and the sustained nature of the relationship as you do from anything else. And then also from being able to walk side by side with a person, a group, a team, whoever it may be, as you help them navigate this process of growth. It's not necessarily about taking somebody from point A to point B in a linear path. It's more about being there alongside of them through this process. Now, counterintuitively, a lot of advisors will say, well, yeah, I've always been the person that everybody comes to for advice since I was a kid. And I would always have the answer to the questions. And that's very often true. There's something about you where people come to you and at the same time, the more skilled you get as an advisor, you start to realize that the, the best way to play that role is actually not to sit there and answer everybody's questions, but to learn how to be quiet and to learn how to elicit people through a series of prompts and questions where the revelations come from them. And then it lands in a much more effective way. So that's the yeah. advisor. So our final two here, we have the advocate. The advocate's impulse is championing an idea, ideal, community, being, this is the person who sees something that is important, that matters, um, whether it's an idea, whether it's an injustice, it can be a lot of different things, but it's not okay for them, for this thing to be ignored, for it not to have the light of day shined on it. And they stand in a role of playing a part in helping to shine that light. This can be a tough impulse because very often it puts you in a position of going against uh, individuals or entire paradigms of authority. And that can mean that you live a lot of your life in a very adversarial way. And so it's really important for people who have this impulse to also understand you really need to develop practices to take care of yourself and to be well mentally and physically because the impulse that you have may demand a lot of you emotionally along the way. And that brings us finally to that, that place where we started this story with Jen, which is the nurturer's impulse, which is really all about lifting others up. It's all about elevation. Yeah, and I, I'm going to, at the start of the episode, I'm going to do a little pre-framing because I'd love for people to listen through that and just try to, yeah, see for themselves what kind of comes up. But I bet also 
it be really helpful to recognize your friends and family too, kind of as you're working through that and just see which of those kind of pique that interest. One thing that you talk about that I really respect and I think is supremely important, I think it actually leads to all kinds of interesting things, is to potentially pause on the initial impulse that happens when you figure out which of these is me. You say it in the book, you say, you're going to feel like blowing everything up and, and just going in a totally new direction. But you actually recommend something different. What do you tell people that feel like, oh, this is my thing. Now I want to just completely change my life in an instant. What do you say to those folks? Yeah, I, I say um, not quite yet. Um, and, and very likely for most people, not, not at all. You know, there, there is that impulse and, and I'm actually somebody who has followed that impulse a number of times and there has been a wake of disruption and very often pain when I've done it. I'm somebody who's also developed a very high tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity and, and a life of practices that allow me to sort of like exist in a state of disruption and uncertainty for a long time, but it's real. I'm very much an outlier in it. And I'm clear sure. that I'm, I'm not writing for people who are the extreme outliers. The vast majority of folks, when you discover about something about yourself and then something in you says, wow, this is me. This is really strong in me. And I'm not doing this. There can be this underlying thing that says, well, you need to just start doing it right away. And the only way to start doing that is to just blow up everything that you've created, your career to this point, like your job, your industry, your relationship with your boss and your colleagues, and, and just start completely fresh somewhere else, whether that's starting your own thing or finding another company or industry. You know, we're in this in the midst of this thing that people are calling now the great resignation. And I have this I have this really big concern that a couple of years down the road, we're gonna be calling it the great regret. Because a lot of people are going to blow things up without having any idea what's coming next. And then they're going to end up stepping into something else that effectively just replicates what they left, but with new paint on the walls and different people in, in the office and the culture. And, and they're going to realize, wow, this actually didn't fix the problem. You know, this is very much an insight game that we're talking about. Yes, the circumstances can make a big difference sometimes. But it's the deeper impulse sure. that we really need to get honest with first. And the truth is, once we understand what that impulse is, almost always there are a lot of opportunities to reimagine the work that you're currently doing in a thousand different ways to be able to do more of this thing that makes you come alive, whether you're working for yourself and you have a lot of control or whether you're working on a team in a large enterprise, you know, and you can sort of earn your way into all sorts of experiments and that sometimes means doing work that is not squarely within the job description that you first said yes to, not because you're being asked to do it, but because you know that if you can do that, you'll be allowed to invest yourself in things that give you this feeling you want a lot more. It'll be really good and nourishing for you. And you may be able to reimagine or to optimize what you're currently doing in a way where it's actually giving you a lot of what you need to come alive, to feel sparked. And then you don't have to endure the pain of disruption, of making a really big break from what you're doing. Because we as human beings, so often we, we fantasize and we, we overemphasize and we overestimate the joy 
that we feel and the elation and the freedom that we think we'll feel when we blow things up and start over and we underestimate the pain of disruption that it'll cause to us and to our lives. And very often we misestimate how long it'll take us to figure out how to bridge the gap between the two and that can cause a lot of suffering. So there will be occasions where it does make sense to really make an abrupt big change and, and especially, you know, like circumstances where you're doing something where it's, it's genuinely harmful physically or mentally or emotionally or there's a toxic environment. Yes, we're not talking about that scenario. You know, extract yourself, get safe, talk to people who can help you. But in, in most sort of like more day-to-day circumstances, there's a world of things that you can do to make what you're doing 10 times better, 10 times more meaningful, more, uh, more energizing and exciting if you really understand what are the deeper impulses that I can start to build around to make it so and then start to scan your horizon and get creative. Yes, I love that so much because that is my actual lived experience. I mentioned mm. earlier that public speaking thing. When I had that moment later on and I and the public speaking thing took me by surprise and I was like, whoa, it was really this reawakening of that performer impulse within me. And I had that moment of, do I just like burn this illustration career to the ground? Like, and just totally, but luckily I had several kids already and I was like, I don't think I can just do that. And so instead what that performer spark looked like was I filtered it through illustration. Primarily I saw that you know, I didn't even realize this, but a lot of illustrators and animators actually see their work as a form of acting. It is literally taking often, whether it's an article or a manuscript, and bringing it to life in the exact same way that an actor might do with a script, uh, just through their pictures. And so I found ways of channeling that energy and, and also combining it with things like teaching and podcasting. And instead of just going off into the performer world, I thought, how can I combine this with everything that I've learned along the way? And that became this podcast. And I think you just, I love that you highlight that because encouraging people to take this information with unconventional outlets, I actually think that's the recipe for innovation. You know, like when you start showing up with this unconventional impulse to an area where there isn't a lot of that, that's like the easiest way. And, you know, easiest way to stand out and starting this podcast was a huge thing for me is I'd already had a pretty great illustration career by the time I launched this thing. But when I did, it was a whole other level of things because of applying that spark in an unconventional way. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I love the example that you shared also of how you were able to, to leverage your illustration to create the same sort of net effect of performance. So like I said, remember I said, the, the underlying impulse of the performer is to enliven, to energize, to animate yes. an interaction, a moment, an experience, right? And a lot of times we think, well, we have to be there like to make it happen. But you're right, like, you're actually creating something that goes out into the world and makes that happen at scale, you know, and knowing that you are playing yeah. that role um, can can really satisfy a lot of that performer Jones. Absolutely. Just what you just said about the performer, as I was reading through my type, that was part of the connection I made of, oh, illustration is all about 
bringing the text to life, giving it emotion. And I was like, oh, that totally satisfies that desire. And and I got a bunch from that that I didn't get elsewhere, as well as things like, we didn't have time to jump in, but the SEI thing you talk about in the book, Mm. the spark type expression inventory, tons, tons of really good stuff. So go check it out. Where can they take the quiz? Yeah, if you just go to sparkatype.com, that's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. And even if you misspell it, we pretty much have the misspelling, so you'll end up in the right place anyway. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Spoken like a, a seasoned maker, you know. <laughs> right. You know how to make that work. Jonathan, this was absolutely fantastic. I know, I know for a fact that my audience is just, they need this. This is... Uh, this is just going to be such a gift. So really, really appreciate you taking the time and everybody go check out Spark. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. Okay. This is a, a very special episode. I love stuff like this and this is a very high caliber one. There are few personality tests and, and, and tests of your strengths and your work that really stick. But since I took the Sparkotype test, I have thought about it so much and it ultimately made an impact on my choices because I realized, oh, I need to prioritize building these kinds of things into my practice. If you want to find out your Sparkotype, your Sparkotype, go to sparkotype.com, S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com, sparketype.com. Go take the test for free. You can also go order the book. Jonathan Fields is the real deal. He has an incredible, huge podcast with some of the most amazing guests ever. I've been listening for years and years and years, and it was a blast to have him on this show. Creative pep talk is part of the co-loop network. I'm so, like, <laughs> I came into that one manic, like I'm desperate. Like you need to know, creative pep talks not just just podcast. It's just out there on its own. We we have friends. <sighs> of this podcast. It's called the Co-Loop Network. All right, I'm done with that weird character. Co-Loop Podcast Network. It's a network of creative podcasts that are designed to fuel your creativity. It's a bunch of creative podcasts. Make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast by signing up to the newsletter, the email newsletter, creativepeptalk.com slash newsletter. Then you never miss an episode. You know, remember those times where you were linking together, listening every single week and you were like, oh my gosh, I'm stacking up momentum. Get back into the momentum. Don't miss any more episodes. I'm talking to you. Yeah, that's right. You know I'm talking to you. Go access episodes one through 199 as well by signing up, creativepeptalk.com slash newsletter. Thanks to Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Massive thanks to Sophie Pizza and Ryan Appleton for content assistance. Huge, enormous gratuitous amounts of thank yous and gratitude to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show so beautifully. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.